Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Full studio here in New York City, formerly the chief economist of the OECD, and now the city's global chief economist, Catherine Mann, dropping by. Good morning to you, Catherine. Uh, good morning to you, too. Can we talk about the faith in 2019 rate hikes that seemed to take a big smash in the face last week. Does it make much sense? What, to have rate hikes in 2019? No, the fact that the Federal Reserve's ah. resolve is seriously being tested by this market and the implied rate hikes through, say, Fed fund futures has rolled over. Well, I think that um, there's uh, on the horizon some potential surprises um, that might change the market's view on whether or not there's going to be more rate hikes. I mean, there's inflation has been extremely quiescent, and I think that's really the in- uh, key ingredient uh, that's keeping the market um, complacent. Uh, about what the trajectory should look like for the um, policy rate going forward. I think that there's uh, potential for some inflation uh, surprises coming in the, at the uh, beginning of the year. I want to pick up on that word complacency, yeah. because we've had some communication from the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. recently that some people have sort of latched onto and said, look, this isn't about complacency anymore. I can see the Federal Reserve is stepping back a little bit from projections for next year. What do you make of that? Well, I think that, you know, they're a data-driven institution. We've had data come in that suggests that the global economy is uh, slowing down somewhat. Uh, And yes, that's going to have an impact on the U.S. economy. What is an important ingredient in thinking about what the Fed has to do is they have to balance what the signals are coming from the global economy with the signals that are coming from uh, sort of the, the domestic economy. And the domestic economy is really very strong and continues to be so. It also has to take signals from the financial markets. And again, there's a distinction between companies that are sort of more domestically oriented. They are not financially market engaged. Uh, Those companies are feeling very good. They did get a tax cut. They're using it to enhance their uh, capital and labor. Uh, And then there are the other companies who are outwardly oriented. In other words, they care a lot about the global yeah. economy, and they are very uh, financially market engaged. They they look at Wall Street. They worry about Wall Street volatility, and it's very important for the Fed uh, to balance those two. Uh, one is a tailwind. One's a headwind. Dr. Mann, the news flow this morning has been so extraordinary. We really haven't gotten to that wheelhouse discussion with you, which is the meetings of the G20. Now, yeah. over the weekend, Vice President Pence. I guess advance the story into a non-story that both sides see miles apart. Is that going to be the outcome that we see in Buenos Aires? Well, uh, if we think of APEC as being the um, the Triple uh, A ball compared to the big leagues of uh, Do you look at it that way? I mean, I think a lot of our listeners really don't understand APEC. What is it? Asia, Asia Pacific S- Economic Cooperation. Thank Forest. goodness we have Catherine yes. with us this morning. <laughs> yep, I've, I've worked with them <laughs> no. before. So I don't know which one's the big leagues. I, I, perhaps I should not have said one's the big league and one's AAA. You but, yourself in but trouble here. I could, you know. <laughs> um, indeed. But the point is, is that if this was the dry run, if APEC was the dry run for G20, yeah. 
you can either you can say, well, it was a dry run. We're going to be very tough. We're going to sh- say we don't uh, have any grounds for agreement, uh, and then let's see what the market responds. How does the market respond to that kind of behavior? And then uh, use that as a key for well, maybe we should agree to something in the G20, yeah. or maybe we shouldn't, depending on how the market uh, absorbs this. We all wake but, up to the same headlines, Catherine, and yeah. sometimes they say tensions rising than 24 hours they say tensions rolling over things are getting better but it just seems to me that different parts of the administration say different things about the same thing the same topic so vice president mike pence seems to be playing bad cop and funnily enough president trump seemed to be playing good cop on the trade issue over the last few weeks or so how do you sort of distill that and communicate to clients exactly what is going on ahead of the g20 well, I think there are multiple voices that are are coming out of um, the uh, administration, and um, that is the administration people are also taking their cue from um, the data as they come in and some of the market uh, uh, volatility as it comes in, and are tuning what they think they should be doing uh, based on that. That's not unreasonable. It's, it's a good idea to, to plumb the uh, opinions of, of the business community and of the policy community and, and of your own base. So all of that's important information for thinking about how you should move forward uh, with an agreement or, or no agreement in twenty in the G20. Well, I'm just wondering how you frame it for, for clients as well, because there are some people that have this very short time horizon yeah. who are looking for a truce at the end of the month which generates a real squeeze into year-end in risk assets and there are some people that take a 35,000 feet view and say look this is a generational problem it's not going to be solved at the G20 at the end of this month it's going to take years maybe decades to play out where do you stand on those two things Catherine? Well, I think there are, of course, some some um, some market participants that just like the volatility from from who says what when and 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 play off of that. So there's plenty of uh, plenty of things to do there uh, if you're that type of market participant. For the longer term ones, um, it does matter if there was to be positive language that came out of the G20. Uh, as I as I was saying earlier, um, you know, if you can't even agree on a sentence that has ten words in it to have it as a uh, as a as oh. a communique you know that's that's pretty that's a pretty low bar because it's not a legal agreement whatever you say in that in that communique it's not a legal agreement <laughs> so you were at our house this weekend Excuse we had a, we had a 10, 10 word communique oh. out of the house this weekend you agreed on one we we did not agree on it oh either. right but that's every weekend at the keen house it is yeah. it is it's a communique i like that can i steal that word it's a standard word it's a standard word yes yeah. communique i like that <laughs> catherine man thank you so much we hope to speak to you in some form uh, around the g20 meetings can catherine hang well. around i feel like it, she'd be great just for tom keen corrections oh it would be good through the morning I mean, on the magic i mean why do we do surveillance besides hanging out with michael barr and talking about the hideous Detroit Lion uniforms in silver gray. I mean, that's one of the reasons, Michael, we hang out. Well, who does? I mean, who does? But, John, <laughs> the magic of having Luigi Zingales and Catherine Mann in the same room, same conversation, the history of that. Luigi's it, up next. They're both at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And it's just the, the history of, of what they live. Were you in seminar with Rudiger Dornbusch at all? You're calling I know. You're saying history as if it's like, you know. Yeah. 
You're Jeff making Catherine you. seem like she's your age. She's not old, Tom. Were, were, yeah. Was know, Rudy Dornbusch there after you? Or Rudy Dornbusch, the late He was my advisor. One, he was your advisor. Paul Krugman and Rudy Dornbusch were my advisors. That's just I, I am channeling Rudy Dornbusch every day when I go look at the yes. markets and I think overshoot. That is so. What was it like being with Rudy Dornbusch He's in a great class? Guy. Absolutely. And he was guy. quick. Yes. Is what I remember. Yep. yep Absolutely yep. fascinating. Catherine Mann with us from MIT. Luigi Zingales with us, University of Chicago Booth School of Business Finance Professor. Luigi, good morning to you. Good morning. Luigi De Maio speaking in the last 24 hours, the Italian Deputy Prime Minister. I wouldn't say he's ready for a reconciliation, but he's certainly open to dialogue. And it makes me wonder where these conversations between the Commission and the Italian government are going and where the Italian government can actually pull back a little bit in terms of the budget deficit. Uh, yes, I think he did uh, show some sign of uh, willingness to reconcile. I, to be honest, I think that uh, Luigi Di Maio has always been more moderate vis-a-vis -vis the European Union vis uh, versus uh, Salvini. So there is a little bit of a good cop, get bad cop playing there, but also some um, strategic differences. I think that uh, Salvini in the past did campaign to exit the euro. Uh, Luigi Di Maio uh, never did that. And uh, so I think that... Uh, if it comes to uh, the Five Star Movement, uh, uh, they are more willing to reconcile. They are less ideological, I think more flexible. Uh, I fear that Salvini wants a confrontation for political reasons. Uh, he understood that uh, confronting the EU bureaucrats, uh, uh, making gains vote uh, at, uh, at home, and then he plays that uh, very aggressively. Well, just to sort of shine a light on that, a league and Matteo Salvini now well ahead in the polls. If you had an election today in Italy, who would win? I think that uh, most likely uh, the, the the Lega depends on whether the Lega uh, get allied with uh, his, its former ally, I.e. Berlusconi. Uh, with that alliance, they will probably reach an absolute majority, but it's not obvious. But the important point that most people miss is that the Italy is not like the UK, where the prime minister can call new election. It is the president who uh, uh, calls new election. And uh, the president has a mandate to try to find if in parliament there are alternative majorities. So if uh, uh, there was a confrontation today, um, I think that the president will look for uh, new majorities. And potentially there is an alternative majority, which is a majority with the Five Star Movement and the Democratic Party. So I think that Salvini needs to be careful in playing the game too aggressively because he might end up being yeah. out of power. This uh, I sound like a conversation in the fifth century 15th century Italy, Doge Zingales. If we look at the split between Genoa and Italy, if you look at the actual culture here, the reality, me, I just looked it up. The Italian economy is 18 or 20 times bigger than the economy of Greece. I mean, I think, first of all, all of us, including me, don't realize that. Does Germany and the rest in Europe, do they understand how big the Italian economy is? Or are they treating it like Greece? I think that they understand how big the Italian economy is, but uh, I, they don't want to make any difference. And uh, I think there is one point in which I'm pretty convinced is that if we go to a confrontation, yeah. Germans are willing to pay any cost not to give up on principle. 
I think that unlike the, the yeah. Italians who are very pragmatic, uh, Germans are very dogmatic yeah. and they're willing to uh, lose significantly on the economic side in yeah. order to make uh, a point on the principal side. Surveillance correction, John, I was doing math with afterthought last night and my head's all filled with decimals and fractions. Italy's 10 times bigger than Greece. But it's not, not just the times. economy Ten that's times. the problem. Um, Luigi, it's the debt market. I believe it's the third biggest sovereign debt market on the planet. I mean, the Italian bond market is the real deal in terms of size, Luigi. <laughs> there is no doubt that it's a real deal. Um, and that's what uh, worries everybody. I, I think that uh, uh, if uh, Italy does not uh, start growing at a healthy rate again, uh, that that uh, is not sustainable. So uh, I think that uh, we fear uh, greatly a recession coming because... I fear that the recession would be the kiss of death. Uh, we are at the point in which we could start to bring down that the, uh, ratio, but if uh, we go back into a recession, there's no way this is going to happen. Not enough time. Luigi Zingales, thank you so much. Look forward to speaking to you. And thank you, uh, uh, thank you for the conversation with Catherine Mann. My the pleasure. Ma Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, moment as well. Let's bring in someone who synthesizes for uh, BlackRock so much of their multi-asset strategy and particularly working off of uh, the fixed income views of Jeffrey Rosenberg and others, and that is Isabel Mateo Sitlago. Uh, always a joy to have her uh, with us. Ms. Mateo Sitlago, good morning uh, to you. What is the yield pullback uh, signal? What do, we, what do we think when we see uh, U.S. full faith and credit yield set at a 307? Uh, good morning, Tom, and thanks for the kind words. Uh, pleasure always to uh, to answer your questions. Uh, so, look, there's there's obviously different drivers. It's it's hard to pinpoint any one in particular. But 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 I think uh, as your comments just made clear, people are very much trying to read the tea leaves in terms of uh, FOMC members' uh, commentary. And certainly, there was a bit of a sense that uh, maybe they were dialing back on uh, some of the earlier, more hawkish comments of uh, of Chairman Powell uh, that may. Be a little premature. We'll see. Um, we'll, 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 we'll see pretty uh, pretty soon about that. But uh, um, uh, so certainly uh, that's going to be a key driver for that longer term uh, for that longer term rate. What does the Fed do? And really, it's the first time in uh, in a while that there's some uncertainty about about what the Fed is going to do. Not, you know, not for December, obviously, but in terms yeah. of when is when is the pause going to come? Uh, and 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 that's been driving uh, some of that uh, volatility in rate. You know, in addition to the um, to the sort of risk on risk off environment, Isabel, I expect a range of opinions at the Federal Reserve. I do also expect, though, the vice chairman and the chairman to be quite closely aligned. So it's interesting that within the space of about six weeks, we've had the chairman say that we are a long way away from neutral, and the vice chairman suggest we're a lot closer than that. Is the truth somewhere in between, or is the communication changing? What do you make of the communication of the last six weeks? Yeah, I mean, look, it's. Uh as they as the fed gets close i mean the thing that they probably all agree on is they're getting closer to neutral they're closing in on it and that means at some point in the not too distant future policy is no longer going to be accommodating that's a big turning point and so they have to kind of really adjust uh, uh, how they uh, how they communicate about it now let's assume like you know by our estimates we've got the we've got the short term uh, neutral rate at around 120 
20 basis points. So that's kind of, you know, four rate hikes from, uh, 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 from, from here. Is that a long way or not? How do you describe it? You know, maybe they didn't sit down all together and say, okay, this is exactly the terminology that we're going to use to describe where, where we are. And, and I think we're seeing the, the results of that in, 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 in sort of um, trial and error communication. But uh, I think they're going to need to be uh, a bit more specific in uh, in the next meeting and in certainly right. in the next uh, statements. What's the operative plan for next year? Are we going to clip a coupon or can we dream of total return? I, there's a raging debate, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think we're uh, we're still. I mean, obviously, as you said, there's uh, there's uh, there's different views. Uh, we're I think in the camp of a modest total return. Uh, to 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 put it that way. Credit spreads winding out through last week, Isabel. If you're in the camp of modest total return, what does that mean for credit specifically? Well, so you know, the last uh, I don't know how to say many weeks, but there's been clearly something else driving uh, higher interest rates than uh, than just uh, than just fed expectations or growth expectations and that's been uh, growing risk premiums frankly across all uh, all risk assets we think that has a lot to do with uh, geopolitical risks and in particular uh, trade tensions which you know affect people's uh, i mean create uncertainty around uh, macroeconomic outcomes and we think if we could get some relief on right. that front even if it's not great or terribly long lasting but that would help you know irrespective of what the fed is going to okay. do okay but within and, and this is important folks because isabel works with multi multi-asset strategy which i think we all do what is the multi-asset strategy of blackrock away from this political story that political story what's the actual to do across assets so at this point, you know, we still have a clear preference for uh, for equities over bonds, uh, but that equity risk, we want to take it in a way that is uh, that is resilient to uh, to growth scares or to interest rate scares, frankly, and that means focusing on focusing on quality, focusing on the less levered uh, balance sheets, the the corporates with the strongest uh, cash yeah. flows. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, maybe moving towards. Uh, uh, right. a, a bit of a barbell strategy, if you will. You know, take both equity risk and then and then some uh, some uh, some safe bonds, preferably at the short end of the curve. Isabel Mateo Silago, thank you so much for BlackRock today. Treatment Forex uh, light today, and we really want to dive back into that, and we can do that best with Brown Brothers Harriman's Win Thin, who joins us uh, this morning, head of uh, currency strategy and foreign exchange at Brown Brothers Harriman. Dr. Thin, good morning to you. Let me begin with a base call for 2019. A wide set of opinions at Bloomberg Surveillance on dollar weakness, dollar strength, dollar range bound, dollar ambiguity. Which is it? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks again for having me, uh, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Um, I, right now, I'm sticking with my strong dollar call. Uh, up until about a week ago, I was extremely confident because the market had... had uh, taking the FOMC meeting as a hawkish signal from the Fed, but I've been out of the country for the last week. I was down in South America, and I'm shocked um, at how quickly the sentiment has turned. Uh, the market has taken back uh, a, rate cut, a rate hike from the Fed, and, and we've gotten to a more dovish take. Again, amazing speed over the last week. 
I do think that the, the, uh, the reaction in the Fed funds futures market, the, the, the financial market, has overdone. Um, I think the Fed will continue to hike next year. But you know, I think the market right now is in a consolidated phase until we sort of clear up this, this uh, really quite muddy waters now. You know, Winston, I look at the cover of your fourth quarter report, the global overview, and you, the title is Thorny Issues Threatening Foreign Exchange in Q4. And it looks terrifying on the cover. It's red <laughs> with thorns. I mean, I don't know where you cut the roses, but all I see are stems and thorns. What are people going to hurt themselves on this year? What do you think they're going to do that's going to be changed because of the way the market really operates? Yeah, no, it's a good question. First of all, I, I didn't choose the picture, but I think it's, it's like something right out of American Horror Story. It, it is frightening. I keep it face down on my desk. Um, Look, the thorny issues that, that I, we pointed out, this came out at the, um, the end of September, uh, and it's coming true now. We've got Brexit, which is total chaos. Uh, we've got Italy muddying the waters. We've got U.S. trade tensions threatening uh, global trade. The, those things all, I think, will remain in play well into next year. Um, that's, it's not going away soon. Um, I think, to me, that the problem is getting in deeper. I think that there's a, the, the risk of a no-deal Brexit have risen to significantly high levels. Uh, I think there's a risk that Italy will be sanctioned um, by the EU for its excessive deficits. And I think uh, the U.S. and China will, will eventually reach an agreement, but not until there's more pain felt. And that, yeah. I, I think that's, that's more of a Q1, Q2 story. I mean, Q1, Q2 and all that is the degrees of freedom that the Fed has, particularly versus other central banks. One of your great charms, Dr. Thin, is a focus on emerging markets. I mean, are they all going to be constrained by emerging market dynamics, or do they act as they will and emerging markets follow on? Uh, in terms of Fed policymaking, it's first and foremost uh, done for the state of the U.S. economy. Okay, uh, I mean, I, the Fed officials, Fed officials aren't, aren't dumb. They realize there are repercussions. Um, but when all said and done, you know, barring some sort of triggering a global financial crisis, uh, the Fed is basically saying, look, you guys, you guys in EM benefited from our low rates for, for years and years. We're taking that back because the U.S. economy is, uh, is on track, and unfortunately, you guys are going to have to deal with it. I mean, I think that's, to me, the basic message that, that's sent. And I, think, I think that's true. I mean, I think you know, the world in general has just gotten uh, too uh, used to, to abnormally low interest rates. Uh, and you know we had debt uh, issued like there's no tomorrow, and I yeah. think at some point the pipe is going to you know have to be paid. Okay, well, how much is a percent move in dollar? I mean, David Bloom at HSBC is is hugely optimistic, like you, on dollar. Consensus goes the other way. Give us a percent move on dollar that could upset consensus, surprise consensus. Ah, okay. Well, I think Tom, I think you 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 hit the nail on the head though. I think that, you know the, there's more. Um, Dollar bears that have been emerging in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, I thought for you know for a while our, I thought our bullish dollar call was consensus, but I think it's, it's moved a little bit out of consensus. Um, you know, due to developments with the, the Fed, uh, etc. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, in order to get the bears uh, sort of uh, to think again, I think we have to get another five uh, percent move, say, in, in the dollar. Five percent. And likewise, you know, I think we'd have to get another five percent move the other way for me to sort of throw yeah. in the towel. You know, I think we're still within recent I would point out, Pim, five percent is a large move in the world of wind thin. Oh, yes. Even one <laughs> percent is a large yeah, move. Yeah, three percent is humongous. Wind thin, you talked about paying the piper. Should it be paid in Chinese yuan or U.S. dollars? Will the Chinese uh, deflate well, the value of their 
currency? Well, I, you know, I, I've been uh, the, Ch- the, the Chinese officials have been downplaying that, and I take them at the word. Uh, they're not going to devalue the yuan. The trade, U.S. trade issues are one thing, but they pledged not to, to weaponize. And I take them at the word. Remember, in 2015, when they devalued, had all sorts of unintended consequences. One of them being massive capital outflows from China, destabilizing global financial markets. I don't think China wants to go down yeah. that road. Um, but as I said, I think it's a separate issue. My view is that the, the yuan trades with, with EM. That's sort of become more market-based. You know, obviously it's still a black box, but right. for the most part, if you look at EM currency for um, performances, well, it, you know, the yuan is sort of in the middle of the pack. Winton, thank you so much. We hope to get you back, particularly for careful discussion on EM currencies. He is head of all of currency strategy, Brown Brothers, Harriman. This is a joy. His name is Bud Bugatti. He's with Raymond James. And over the years, he has pieced together a definitive place in what we do with our living rooms, our offices, our dining rooms. He is the guy who knows that, Pim Fox, you do need a new sofa. You you do, <laughs> and Bud it, knows can't it. can't pay for it. Well, there's that as well. Bud Bugatz not only following big box like Home Depot and Walmart, but legendary on furniture stuff, out of pen, and uh, he, he majored in baking. Knoll steel, and he's got Knoll yeah. steel case. Those are just two He majored in baking at HBS as well along the way. Bud, are we furnishing our houses like we used to? What's the new calculus for the stuff we put in houses? Well, we are, we are furnishing our houses like we used to, but uh, we are doing it in somewhat different ways by using, uh, by knowing the, uh, the products that we want before we go into a store. And when I had my business and I had uh, nine furniture stores at one time, a long time ago, um, people would shop upwards of four to six stores before making a decision. Today, that's not the case. Today, you go online, you research what you want, and you may, you may shop yeah. one at most two stores. Is North Carolina still dominant? Well, there is the, that's where you have the largest furniture market in the world in North Carolina in High Point. That's still there. There's still about 10 million square feet of display space down there, and they have markets every April and October. But the products are made now globally. Uh, you make uh, have moved uh, a lot of the wood furniture is moved to Asia, primarily starting in China, but then migrating to Vietnam and Indonesia and other places in Asia. And you still have uh, some products. And, of course, that's the issue that you're going to have with the tariffs because you're going to have uh, an issue uh, with some of those products uh, now coming back to the states or coming into the states and costing some additional money. We had deflation in this industry from essentially the late 90s to the mid teens of this year, of, of the 2000s, and now you've started to see inflation again. Do you see more store closings, specifically small companies that are not aligned with large retailers like a Walmart? I think, well, Walmart's not really big in in furniture uh, except through Sam's. They do sell some furniture and mattresses uh, in the Walmart, but not really in what I would call the major furniture way. Right. No, I wasn't thinking just Walmart, but I mean among your coverage uh, companies. Yeah, the, the, you've had most of the store closings you've had, you've already had. Um, what's left today are really well-run operators, um, and they will they, they typically will survive. So the, the credit quality of well, what's remaining mm-hmm. in the marketplace has improved. Uh, you've had significant dislocation really in the first decade of, uh, of the 2000s. 
to Tom's point about whether we furnish our homes in the same ways that we used to, is it a focus on electronics first and then you find a place to sit? Um, to some degree, in some houses, certainly for the man cave, that's uh, that's a point. Oh. Um, uh, and you've seen different form factors in the electronics when you had the mm-hmm. the big big cathode or the the big deep cathode ray tubes or the big home centers. You would have to have uh, fairly deep um, cases to handle that. Today, a lot of those uh, video uh, products are actually hung on the wall, so oh, really? it changes some of uh, some of the, um, were the they dimensional run, aspects. Bud, where they run YouTube videos of face masks and girl stuff 24-7. I watched like seven yeah, minutes of football this weekend. Than it was oh, yes, there's ago. that discussion as well. But give me a single best buy. I mean, one of the things, what's so famous, what's so wonderful about Bud Bugach is he actually like did it. How, how unusual is that to go out and try to actually run a business? And then he writes these hyper-detailed sell-side reports. What's your, what's your number one buy right now within the mix of all this? I think it would be Leggett and Platt, um, which is a supplier to a lot of the industry. Uh, there's a lot going on in um, in that industry. Beds, um, right? Isn't this beds, uh, electric beds? Well, they, they, they actually have 17 business units, and those business units are highly diverse. So you have, you have if not only beds, but you have uh, – they're the largest player in automotive seating as well. So it's a very diverse company, and I think another very uh, well-placed uh, equity today is Tempur-Sealy, and they are beds. Um, that's the, okay. uh, the combination of Tempur-Pedic and Sealyan. Mattress. But everywhere I go, foam is winning. They roll up the bed and they throw it in a box, Casper this, you know, that. I mean, is the traditional bed business working or is it all new? Well, you see, that's a, that, that accounts for some piece of the business, perhaps, and that's where the growth has been marginally, although the yeah. major growth recently has actually been an import of low-priced Chinese mattresses, and that's actually under attack uh, because the Department of Commerce is in the middle, in the early stages of an anti-dumping case, um, which could change the nature of that industry um, really probably sometime in the spring to summer yeah. of next year. Does the consumer oh. have enough money to keep spending the way they have in the past? And does it all go on the credit card? No, it doesn't all go on the credit card. The consumers have been very, very well off, um, and we've had uh, uh, some pretty good spending in the uh, in the industry, uh, mid-single digits, low to mid-single digits year-over-year growth. Um, and, the con- and it doesn't all go on the credit card, but at the uh, at various places it does. Uh, it goes on the credit card, and it's obviously um, in in other forms yeah. of credit um, of uh, uh, of a longer variety. But how do you respond to a South that made all this furniture? You know, the legacy of Stickley Audi and all the fancy New York uh, and, you know, Northeastern and over to Wisconsin people. But the South has done most of this. And a part of the jobs and the angst of the trade war is all these jobs disappeared proverbially to China. Can we get jobs back in the Bud Bugatch world? Uh, I don't think they're going to come back in that same variety. Um, we've seen variety, we've seen jobs come back to North America uh, in upholstery and some cutting and sewing. 
where yeah. you you actually have the fabric imported from China. But you take a look at upholstery, you need fabric first. And there is very little fabric and very little of the fiber still done in this country. So that's a real problem. Yeah. Um, and that's unlikely to come back uh, in any form, perhaps in uh, your and my lifetime. Bud, um, we got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Bud Bugatz with Raymond James. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.